there is over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Net Zero Carbon, the show here at Freight Waves, where we deep dive into decarbonization with the lens of freight, fuels, and energy. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Anthony Harrison, Head of Policy and Communications at Terawatt Infrastructure. Anthony, how are you? I'm great, Tyler. Glad to be here. Excited to talk about what's going on in the world of policy around zero emission trucks. Not many people who aren't like neck deep in the nerdy policy world would be super excited, but that's why I'm pumped to have the show because it is so important to what comes next in the electrification of freight. So I'm excited to have you maybe break it down in simple terms. I thought we could start high level and go go really practical by the end of the show. But before we get into any of that nuance, let's get the backstory on you. Who is Anthony and what do you do at Terawatt? Yeah. So um, I lead up uh, all of our public policy regulatory affairs work at uh, Terawatt Infrastructure, uh, as well as all of our uh, public relations and communication work. I've been working in clean energy and e-mobility for almost 15 years now. I started off in the renewable energy sector, worked on energy storage, and what drew me to e-mobility, and I spent uh, about seven years uh, at, at another company working on this across uh, a variety of different market segments, was the fact that um, the combination of everything we're doing in the energy sector and what we need to do to transform our economy and everything there to go net zero, every, all of that is now intersecting with transportation. And so now we've got this intersection between two of the most complicated and regulated environments that you have, energy and transportation. And so I was excited to join Terawatt Infrastructure, uh, which is a company that is purpose-built and focused on developing EV charging infrastructure for commercial fleets. Um, and that, to me, that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of climate, sustainability, energy, and, you know, e-mobility, new transportation um, revolution really is around enabling fleets uh, to go net zero and to electrify what they're doing. And so that's what I'm working on. And it's been um, an exciting transition for me um, to spend all of my time helping fleets go electric. That's so exciting. You're kind of front running my last question, which I always leave for guests at the end about why they do what they do. But um, now I'm excited to hear that. And I'm glad you're on the job. And it sounds like we're going to have a lot to talk about with each of these policy lovers since you've been in it for a decade and a half at this point. But we all know that it's ever-changing. The landscape is constantly moving. We're really just starting to figure out how a lot of the recent policies are going to be implemented. So I'd love it if you could start maybe the highest level. What is the biggest policy that's driving fleet electrification and charging infrastructure rollout here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'll just like say as, as a base point, I think both federally and then at certain state levels, there have been policy levers that are driving EV adoption writ large, but the bulk majority of that we've seen has been either in the passenger vehicle sector, or we started to see, we don't want to leave out kind of public sector electrification, things like electric bus, electric school bus, a lot of activity there. I think if you look at what Terawatt score focus is, and we're really talking about commercial fleet electrification, there's been really two main drivers. There's the kind of carrot side of things, which is incentives. So are, is there money available for your fleet to transition over and buy an electric vehicle? And is there policy mechanisms that are bringing more dollars to the table around that? That's been really focused in a couple of core markets, places like California, where they've had programs that are dedicated to that. 
but recent policy changes. So the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which had a whole bunch of different clean energy and transportation related measures in it, um, created uh, a tax credit on commercial vehicles, 45W. And what we're already seeing as a response to the market is that that is a you know potential major driver to expanding zero emission vehicle adoption in the commercial sector across multiple markets. So this isn't just a California game anymore. You know, that's that's a policy that has the substantial impact to bring down the cost of adopting an electric vehicle anywhere. The other kind of overarching big policy lever we've seen come down in the last 18 months or so is the uh, IIJA, the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act, also called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Um, and there was a lot of activity around that and a lot of exposure around a component of that for EV charging infrastructure. You heard the president talk about it in the State of the Union address around the the NEVI program, the National Electrical Vehicle Infrastructure Program. That program's $5 billion, and it's mainly designed around building a highway network of fast chargers for passenger vehicles. But that doesn't mean that the infrastructure law does not have a component for commercial electric vehicles. In fact, out of $26 billion dollars, dedicated to zero emission uh, transportation in there, the bulk majority of that is actually for commercial vehicles, whether it's the vehicles themselves through programs that are going to be run out of uh, the EPA, um, but also another $2.5 billion for alternative fuel infrastructure for commercial vehicles. So this is going to take the form of what we just saw released last week uh, by the joint office. So this is the office of the DOE and uh, Department of Transportation jointly releasing the guidance on grant opportunities to the tune of $700 million over two years for alternative fuel infrastructure. Of course, us, Terawatt, we only do electric. Um, so that's what we're key focused on. But that money can also be available for hydrogen um, and other uh, low emission or zero emission fuels. Thanks for that. I think that's a helpful framing. Uh, I like the visual of carrots and sticks. I think it's easy to digest and helps us make sense of what's driving action here in the sector. You mentioned a couple things that I want to double click on. One, you said the 45W as part of the IRA uh, and then NEVI. Can you break down how each of those might play out at, uh, you know, wheels on the ground level? Are those tax credits? Are those rebates? Are those grants you apply for? How can fleets participate in that? Yeah. So for 45W, that is a tax credit, right? So that's that's post-purchase. So that works the same way if you or me were to go out and buy an electric vehicle, we pay the sticker price. Hopefully we got a good deal on it. And then when it's our next time to, to file our taxes, we're able to claim that credit. So what we haven't seen yet, I come from the renewable energy world, and there was a lot of innovation in finance around monetizing tax credits. And so now that these vehicle tax credits are out there, I mean, the market is open to different financial structures where uh, hopefully what we'll see is innovation around that sector for commercial vehicles where they can work with different leasing financing providers, uh, open the doorways into monetizing tax credits in ways that makes the most sense. But in general... Um, we're just incredibly excited that the federal government is taking the lead on action around helping to bring the cost down around these things. It shows a commitment to the fact that this is where we need to go. Um, and that is on the carrot side. Um, on the stick side, just to stay on that for a second, on the on, from the federal government perspective, we do have the EPA um, looking at rules around NOx and SOx emissions, rules around diesel uh, engine emissions. Um, there's updated guidance that came out in December, implementation of that over the over you know the long haul. And so these are other driving factors. So there's, you know, kind of near term carrots, like let's let's get you into a zero emission truck as soon as possible. Um, and then there's timelines out here coming from the federal government. We can get into a little bit later coming from state governments around. All right. Now we've told you, like, we want to get you there. Um, 
how much longer are you going to be able to operate a vehicle that is, you know, emitting carbon emissions on the road? So I think both of those things are there. Your other question that you have was around NEVI um, and then the, the other component of the infrastructure law, which is more around these corridor alternative fueling for commercial fleets. So those are really going to take the form of a grant, and that's primarily going to be pursued by partnerships between public and private entities. So whether it's state governments or local governments or regional planning agencies that can uh, apply for these grant funds from the federal government, like I said, there's 700 million that's on the table over the next couple of years out of a total two and a half billion. Um, and they're going to work together. Hopefully these, these local entities and state entities will work together with folks like us from the private sector in deploying that, that grant fund and capital to build out the necessary infrastructure to support fueling zero emission trucks. Super helpful. And I can already tell that some listener who's not familiar with this is already scratching their head like, geez, that sounds like a lot. Hold on, guys. We're not even close yet. We're going to go <laughs> layers deeper and peel back the onion a little bit further. So let's um, let's assume all that's available for me, but I also own a trucking fleet in California, uh, which, as everybody knows, is a state that's taken the lead in a lot of these uh, policy measures. Take me through what I need to be aware of there when we get down to a state level. Yeah. And actually there's some, some near-term headlines. Like if you were just to, to Google, you know, California and waiver, just those two words, you'll see a Washington Post article that came out two days ago where, uh, the EPA was, uh, basically giving notice that they were going to grant California's waiver around, uh, which we will go into the advanced clean trucks rule. So, um, the advanced clean truck rule is something that was, uh, implemented, uh, in early 2020 by the California Air Resources Board. And that's actually a sales requirement. So it's a percent of vehicle sales requirement in California. Um, and it starts in 2024 and goes up over time all the way to 2035. And what it's basically mandating is that if you are offering commercial vehicles class 2b through 8 for sale in california um some percentage starting with five percent going all the way up uh, to 75 percent uh, has to be zero emission over a, a linear timeline uh, in order for california to enact this uh they need a waiver from the federal government and that's what we've been waiting on those that watch this in the industry and and they've done the same thing california has very famously done the same thing for passenger cars right they've passed you know, the most stringent rules around passenger light duty vehicles. They're doing the same thing on the, um, on the medium and heavy duty side. And so that's the indication that we're getting is that the EPA will grant them that waiver. We think definitely under this administration, that's going to happen. And that would follow the same path. That was, if people remember from the previous administration, that was a big tussle, right? Between the White House and California, as far as setting those passenger vehicle standards, this seems like the same, except the waiver is much closer to happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like I said, under this administration, they all, all signs are pointing to um, that waiver being implemented. There's another component of this where we're, yes, we're talking about California, but what's really important is as soon as California adopted the advanced clean trucks rule, uh, they reached out and we've now had 17 other states that have come together and signed an MOU that said, we will follow California's lead on this. Um, again, this is mirroring what we've seen in the light duty sector, right? We've had ZEV states that everyone talks about on the passenger side. Um, so now we have um, led through uh, a consortium of different states that they're committed to doing this. So, you know, that's a- geographically, those are kind of up the West Coast, Northeast, pockets in the Midwest. And let's not forget Hawaii. Want to shout them out. There is there is city of Syria as well, too. So not just the mainland. Um, we're seeing. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and including the District of Columbia as well. So I think, you know, that's that's one component. Now, California didn't stop there. So the other thing that's in motion right now, if you think of uh, the advanced clean trucks as a sales requirement, 
uh, there is consideration this year for the adoption of something called the Advanced Claim Fleet Rule. So for all of you out there that like love the acronym soup, you have ACT, A-C-T, uh, and then you have ACF. ACF is actually a fleet adoption requirement, meaning if you operate a fleet of a certain size uh, of, of differing sectors, you have percent adoption requirements of your fleet year over year going all the way to 100%. So that's before the Air Resources Board right now. And uh, there's obviously been a lot of industry discussion around that and the components of that, what that's going to look like. Um, but those two things taken together, the advanced plane fleet and, uh, and advanced plane trucks rules, I think set kind of the cornerstone for um, the adoption targets and I think where a lot of the commercial fleet operators um, are looking at where they need to go and make investments um, in the near term. And when you look at California as a catalyst for it, but 17 other states probably kind of be close, fast followers on that. Um, it's, you know, creating a lot of near term market demand, not just on the vehicle side, which we're increasingly seeing more availability and different class of vehicles. But obviously, for what we do every day, you know, the biggest questions are, all right, how are we going to fuel these things? Like, I got to get the trucks. And now increasingly, I got to get them faster, maybe than my, what my plan would have been or what my roadmap would have been with maybe my own ESG targets or my own sustainability goals. Now I got to I got to bring that timeline forward. And so I think that's where we get into, you know, what are the other policy levers and mechanisms that are not only helping to uh, increase adoption on the vehicle side, but obviously on the charging side as well. Yeah, that's uh, a conversation that we definitely have to have too. But it makes sense, right? That if you're going to start and mandate supply, then you also need to have some guidance for the demand sector as well. So those two rules kind of play off each other. And then the ecosystem has more momentum to start building itself and charging can develop as people need it, um, as opposed to being dictated, maybe even like Nevi or, or some of the nationwide 50, every 50 miles along the corridor, some of those things feel a little less uh, you know, driven by need from the market as opposed to top-down kind of pushing it. So when we think about top-down policy and, you know, specifically bat fast chargers every 50 miles along the highway, that, that's top-down driven. It's making sure that everybody's got access to something no matter where they are. Fleets don't really operate that way. And charging infrastructure is going to materialize differently based on fleet needs. So talk us through how some of those needs are being addressed or guided or shaped by policy. Yeah, it's a fantastic question and probably one that I spend the bulk majority of my time um, both working with and educating policymakers on the vast difference between light duty charging infrastructure like we see in NEVI versus commercial fleet charging infrastructure where, you know, the type and class of vehicle, your duty cycle, your route, you know, where you need to be and when, whether or not you have access to land and power at your facility versus not. And so that's really where Terawatt was born out of. But I think from a, a, a policy sector, understanding that mechanisms and I'll use, you know, California and some of the other West Coast states that have things like the low carbon fuel standard. What they are is uh, an incentive mechanism on the infrastructure and charging side. Um, and I think as those develop and as those are getting modified, like we're seeing in California this year, modified to encourage deployment for medium and heavy duty, understanding a few key things is important. One, fleets do not want to rely on public infrastructure. That is too risky for them. They cannot afford to wait in line and pull up at a stall along the highway in 50 miles. If that doesn't meet with their operational needs, that doesn't meet with the driver's scheduling and needs, doesn't have the amenities that are specific to them, not to mention, does it have the power levels and the stall pull-throughs and everything I need? So I think what we're seeing from fleets is purpose building both depot and opportunity charging is incredibly important and making sure that the policy mechanisms that are encouraging proactive build-out incorporate those pieces of feedback 
Um, and then understanding that there's going to be a variety of business models. There's going to be some fleets that want to go ahead and invest in the infrastructure themselves and build it out for their own fleets. And, you know, they can, they can operate and charge at lower powers overnight. And there's going to be other fleets that, you know, maybe I'm a smaller drayage operator near a port. I have no access to land. Um, and I need to be able to charge, you know, in less than an hour during my operational duty cycle at some third party location. Um, and so again, this is, you know, Terawatt's core focus, understanding those needs, understanding the, the, the variability in it, and then working with policymakers as they're shaping these programs to make sure that they're accounting for that difference um, in how different it may be from uh, a light duty fleet, uh, light duty uh, vehicle, and also the, the variability among fleets. It's super important to keep in mind because it's not only the difference between duty cycle and operational needs of commercial versus passenger, but even within the commercial and the fleet sector, you know, a small port operator is very different than a nationwide over the road carrier. And those needs are going to look different based on not only the size of the fleet. In fact, some of the policies are written differently to try and assist, you know, from the social justice perspective, some of these smaller, less capitalized fleets. Talk a little bit about maybe some of those policies around ports, you know, aging out trucks and providing buckets of funding for certain size fleets versus others. Talk a little bit about the thought process that policymakers are taking there. Yeah. And, you know, this has actually been one of the hottest topics, not just um, in places like Southern California, but increasingly in, in other areas of the country. Over the course of the pandemic, we saw a huge build out in the logistics uh, and warehousing space. Um, and while that has caused increase in freight, um, and different trucking activities, especially in different communities across the country. Uh, we have, especially environmental justice advocates that are raising a lot of concerns around there's more truck activity, idling, um, and other polluting emissions coming through different neighborhoods than weren't before. And policymakers are reacting to that and addressing it. Um, so I think that you have things like um, the WARE rule in Southern California, which is uh, a, rule, a rule around warehouse emissions um, that is being set up in place to say, Hey, if you're going to operate and be doing, you know, and have trucking coming in and out of this this region, that there's going to be a cap on emissions, or it's going to be some sort of cap and trade like program, where if you know you're going to be allowed to emit, you're either going to pay a penalty or you're going to have to show some offsets. And deploying EV charging infrastructure is an eligible component of some of those offsets. Adopting zero emission trucks um, is part of those. And so those are some of the again carrots and sticks that we're seeing considered. Um, and I think that we're on kind of the earlier end of what those mechanisms look like. But I can, you know, already tell you that other areas of the country are quickly looking at what's happening in places like Southern California around how to reduce truck emissions um, and address kind of the sprawl of different logistics and warehouse hubs and the impact on those in communities. And so I think uh, that's, again, where we've really been been focusing on a couple of different components within that, which is what is kind of the regulatory environment, what that looks like that we are not just putting in place kind of the the regulatory top down thou shalt you know cut emissions but also what are the bottom up like how do we make this easier for you as a fleet operator that's important to terrible right how do we get you into vehicles quicker and easier and cheaper how do we get you access to fueling that aligns with your business model and has minimal disruption to your operations i think that's going to be the next wave of policies that we see that we're advocating for of you know let's let's make sure that we're going bottom up and top down together um because we have the same goal like we want every single truck on the road to be uh, electric zero emission and we want you know it to be able to get access to fuel cost effectively and so i think that's it's really where we're combining those things i had no um ambition to try and cover 
as much great ground as we've covered in just under over 20 minutes. We could do this for another two hours, I think, and barely scratch the surface. But the way the thread has just unfolded a little bit, going from you know top down to regional and uh, you know, operational needs, and then ending here on kind of local needs driven by personal motivation to not leave people behind, always leads me to my favorite question of every interview, which is, man, Anthony, when you wake up in the morning and you get to work on sustainable freight-related issues, what is your motivation for doing that? I think for me, I know a lot of people use this, so it's a token response, but I think for me, it's it's absolutely, uh, I, I have two children and it's, um, you know, bringing them into a world, you know, we talk about it as, you know, being born electrics, you know, my children, you know, they see me driving electric at home. They see electric buses around the neighborhood. Increasingly, they're seeing more and more opportunities. Like I want them to grow up in a world where that's the way that we move people and goods. We move them on zero emission. Um, and I think that there's a, a, a myriad of benefits from, you know, community, health, um, sustainability environment around that. And so I just think that it's exciting for me to see, you know, the children of this generation growing up in a world where they may take an electric bus to school, um, you know, drive on a road trip uh, at, along a fully electrified corridor route, um, and then see the garbage trucks driving in and through their street every day um, that are 100% zero emission. That's that's why I get up and do what I do every day. Dude, so exciting. And you make a great point. I hear a lot about that we do it for the kids. And on the wake of this week's release of the latest IPCC report, like it's easy to think, well, if we don't, we're all going to die. Uh, which, you know, some people think, and that's something we want to keep in mind, like it's an important, urgent topic. But I've got a, a neighbor at the top of the hill who's got a three-year-old and we just had trash trucks coming by today. And every day he's out there waiting on the trash truck to come by because he loves watching them. And if that trash truck was electric, he would still come out every day and love watching them. So I love that concept you're mentioning of just like, we have digital natives, right? For all all of us who grew up with computers and have been around since the 90s, we're not going to have electric vehicle natives. That's right. I love that phrasing that you just put in there. That's great. Thank you. Awesome. This was educational. Thanks for stopping by. We're going to do it again because we barely scratched it. So we'll have to come back uh, six months after we got some new policies in, <laughs> underway and get the, the latest lay of the land. Yeah, anytime. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, giving me the time. Trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're going to have to take into consideration CO2 emissions.